do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. This is the first stanza of Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go Gentle Into That Good Night. So what do a poet from the 1950s and a science fiction film have in common? Consider this a test on whether or not you have seen Interstellar. Now, if you haven't, I'll say one of my favorite phrases. I'm not mad. I'm just disappointed. If you haven't seen it, consider this your only warning, because this shit is about to get spoiled faster than milk. Okay, so now that we've gotten that out of the way, welcome, welcome, welcome. You're listening to Movies with Mac. Me? I'm Mac. Hi. How you doing? Sit down, grab a cup of coffee, or whatever beverage you're into, and let's get these sound waves going. Life moves pretty fast. You don't stop and look around once in a while. You could miss it. That was the most inconsistent intro ever if you listened to the last episode. Yeah, whatever, I'll get it down eventually. <laughs> Actually, I probably won't. I'd rather be honest and inconsistent than a consistent liar, I guess. In the wise words of Matthew McConaughey, though, who we'll be talking about a lot today. All right, all right, all right. It's time to actually focus on what I'm doing with this episode. Also, if you think I'm rambling now, you just wait. I feel bad for my friends, especially my best friend. Hi, Sid. I love you with my whole soul, unless you're not listening to this podcast. I'm kidding. Anyways, I feel bad for her especially, because I never shut up about this movie. And she's never even seen it. <laughs> it may have been her I was shading a tad earlier. And even though I'm about to dump all of my random knowledge about this movie, that doesn't mean I'm going to stop talking about it for those of you that know me. Sorry, not sorry. Also, sorry, my brain is a clusterfuck all the time. You'll get used to it. The introduction episode was scripted, and this one isn't, if you take my meaning there. Let's just say I would have named this podcast The Shit Show if it wasn't already taken. That was a joke. I have an interesting sense of humor. You'll get used to that too if I haven't scared you away yet. Okay, I need to shut up. Well, I can't shut up or there wouldn't be a podcast. I need to talk about the movie though. Here we go. The year is 2014. Taylor Swift just dropped 1989. Life is freaking great. And then just a month later, something even better than a T-Swizzle album comes out. Christopher Nolan's Interstellar. Except I was 12 at the time, and I had no clue what the hell was happening in the movie. I swear I have never been more confused in my entire life. And since I'm an adult now, or so they tell me, I understand it. Or at least I'm going to try to fool you into thinking I do. I need like a soundboard or something to make a noise when I'm joking. Or like a light that comes on, like when Tars makes a joke in the movie. I'm fangirling already, wow. To attempt to give this a sense of organization, because I seem to be lacking in that thus far, I'm going to lay out the episode in accordance to pre-production, production, and post-production. Now let's get into pre-production. This was Nolan's ninth feature film. You may recognize his name. Um, he did the Dark Knight trilogy, Inception, and the newly released Tenet, to name a few. Now, the idea for Interstellar, it didn't start with Nolan. It actually came from theoretical physicist Kip Thorne, who I will talk about more in depth later, and producer Linda... Oops. God, I hope I'm saying her name right. 
It's like when people read my name as Mark. I hate that so much. Fun fact, this has nothing to do with what I was talking about, by the way. I was yearbook editor in high school, and the only yearbook to get misprinted, the, the like plating on the outside, if you know what I'm talking about, um, was mine. And it definitely said Mark Johnson. I thought it was hilarious. That has nothing to do with Interstellar, and I might get myself into trouble here, so I'm going to shut up now. Sorry if I pronounced the producer's name wrong, though. But those two hatched up the initial idea for the film and then set it up for further development with Paramount Pictures. Paramount then hired Jonathan Nolan to write the script. Jonathan and Chris are brothers, by the way. They also have another brother that didn't go into the film business. He was arrested on murder charges, if you want to look into that. <laughs> Spielberg was actually expected to direct the film, but he backed out because I don't know why he's Spielberg. He can do what he wants. The director's chair was empty, and Chris had just wrapped up the Dark Knight trilogy. And since Chris is freaking awesome, he was like, yeah, I want to screw with people's brains some more. And then he expressed his interest in the movie. Nolan was close-knit with Warner Brothers, so they eventually backed the film in addition to Paramount once Nolan filled the seat. Nolan strayed away from a world of superheroes and went on to Interstellar where scientists and mathematicians were the heroes. Nolan, like myself, is a huge fan of both Star Wars and 2001, a space odyssey. And he had a deep interest in exploring the science fiction realm. He and his brother, they crafted the screenplay and would run the ideas by Kip Thorne, who I mentioned earlier. Interstellar is constantly regarded as ambitious because of its scientific accuracy. So what do I mean by that? Chris had an idea at one point in the writing process to incorporate traveling at the speed of light. But no matter how much you think on the whole jumping to light speed thing, that doesn't make it a thing, you know? So needless to say, traveling at light speed is not something we see in this movie. Laws of physics and relativity are highly incorporated. We see this a lot, especially with the way gravity affects the characters. Now, I would like to say... I'm not saying this movie is 100% factual. I'm saying it's based on scientific evidence that makes it possible. It is science fiction, after all. Don't shoot the messenger, or anybody else for that matter. For example, though, the black hole, which they call Gargantua, is based off of our knowledge of black holes, especially in regards to appearance. On the note of appearance, let's talk set. Minimal CGI is used in this film. What? But Mac, they didn't actually go to space. How is that possible? With a $165 million fucking budget, that's how. It would have been more expensive to go to space, but less expensive to use visual effects. So why didn't they? Nolan wanted this film to be as real as possible, not just for the viewers. Making it tangible for the actors also contributes to the overall feel of the film. And in my opinion, it just looks better. I think Chris would agree. I don't know. I'll ask him if I ever see him in line at Whole Foods or something, or if my career in Hollywood doesn't fail. I'm totally kidding. The only thing I do know for sure is Chris expressed going into the film that everything that can be shot on camera would be, which means there are some limitations. We will get to those. So I'm sure you're wondering, what's CGI and what's not? When the crew of the Endurance, or what's left of them, goes to Dr. Mann's planet, they actually got on a traditional flight like you and I would, and not a spaceship. 
and they went to Iceland. <laughs> That's real with the exception of some environmental factors. You may recognize this from the film's poster, where Cooper, Matthew McConaughey's character, is standing in the middle of this icy scene. So, moral of the story, if you want to go to an ice planet in another galaxy, don't bother. We have Iceland for that. Another set that is entirely real is the house where Cooper's family lives. They built that in Alberta, Canada. They built an actual house. And that's not even the best part. You know the corn. Of course you do. It's freaking everywhere. They planted that just for this movie. I never thought I'd be jealous of someone planting corn, but I am. I go to my friends and I'm like, hey, can I borrow your living room for a short film? But massive cornfields? Now that's a goal of mine. Okay, enough about the corn because I could literally make this whole podcast about that alone. Another set that is real, my favorite one, is the Tesseract, which is where Cooper falls into the black hole. The freaky thing in Murph's room. Yeah, it's a physical set. Freaking dope. Lots of pieces of the set just in general are either miniatures or built beyond that. The endurance itself being one of them. The crew actually sat inside of it and to create the illusion of space. Projections of the scene were outside the windows and are what appeared in the movie. Now, for the visual effects part, things like the wormhole and the black hole are CGI. Let's talk cast now. No one is known for working with the same people consistently. The only two that make an appearance in Interstellar, though, are Michael Caine, who plays Professor Brand, <coughs> scumbag, and Anne Hathaway, who plays his daughter, also called Brand. I'd also like to mention that I'm not calling Michael Caine a scumbag. I am calling his character one. <laughs> As for the lead, Matthew McConaughey, no one actually had a sort of interview with him, if you will, just to judge how they would work together. Evidently, it went well, because he got the part. <laughs> Jessica Chastin plays older Murph, Cooper's daughter. There are also other notable people with minor roles, like Matt Damon. And ladies get excited for some reason I don't understand. Timothy Chalamet. And since I don't want to stay on the subject of Timothy Chalamet, let's talk production. <laughs> Shooting this thing. To create the large-scale look of space, Interstellar was shot on an IMAX camera using 35mm film. It was actually, I think, the last film that Paramount authorized to shoot on film before making the switch to digital. You have to have, like, the right projectors for that kind of thing. Don't quote me on that, though. I've probably watched every video on this movie ever made, and that sounds right. <laughs> now, I want to talk story, because in all honesty, I feel like I've been spitting facts at you like crazy, and I want to leave some room for interpretation in this section. Let's return to the poem from earlier. See, I'm not just talking out of my ass. It all comes full circle. Now, when I was 12, like I said, I was so confused during this whole movie. This is one of the things that confused me. Now, I love random poetry out of nowhere, don't get me wrong. It is the way to my heart. Talk Frost and Dickinson to me, if you know what I mean. But when the voiceover of Professor Brand played reciting Do Not Go Gentle into that good night, little me, okay, correction, littler me, I'm still very little. I was like, the fuck? Are we at open mic night now? Do I get a turn? But me now, I'm like, Nolan, you're a fucking genius. Poetic cinema, ladies and gentlemen. Literally. Need I say more? The poem is there for a reason. 
We're not at a coffee house, although that is probably a better situation to be in than our characters are at the moment. This is just where the theme is stated, though. Now, if you're like me, and eat, breathe, and sleep screenwriting, you'd know that this is unique. Save the Cat by Blake Snyder, aka the Holy Bible for screenwriters, says it's usually delivered by a supporting character to a main character. But here, we have something that Cooper can't hear, but we as an audience can. So what are the Nolans trying to tell us? Ah, I'm getting excited. Okay, here we go. And no one can tell me to stop talking. This is my favorite part about this. Like, theoretically, you could press pause, but like, don't. It's worth it, I promise. Pressing pause is not worth it. Keep listening. Okay. The theme that can be derived from the poem is love is a higher dimension of space and time. Love outweighs oblivion, if you will. Now, remember the save the cat thing that I just talked about. This does happen, actually, just later. Bran says it to Cooper. She goes, love is the one thing we're capable of perceiving that transcends time and space. That's the quote. Literally the theme verbatim. I would argue that it is one of the highest emotional points in this film, but not the highest. The theme is obvious there, sure, but where I think it's the most prominent without being forthright about it is after the team leaves the water planet. This is after they've just lost 23 years due to the effects of gravity. That's 23 years away from Earth, away from their families. Cooper gets back onto the ship, where the videos from his family await him. He learns of his son, Tom, having a baby. Well, Tom doesn't have- Tom's wife has the baby. And he also learns that Murph is still pissed at him. He sits there, and he cries. He ugly cries. Well, he like ugly cries in a way that only Matthew McConaughey could ugly cry, as in it's not really that ugly. <laughs> He's crying like, you know, you do when you're, you're in your room, you're alone, it's 3 a.m. and you're listening to music that you probably shouldn't be, that type of crying. Like tear ducts, more like freaking aqueducts. I joke about it, but it's hands down the most beautiful scene I have ever seen. The empathy we feel for Cooper in that moment is astronomical. No pun intended. Just imagine, if you gave up watching your kids grow up to maybe potentially save the world, how would you feel? I wouldn't even know how to answer that. But watching Cooper there gives me a faint idea. This movie is about the ultimate sacrifice, and it all cracks down to love. Love is the foundation for everything in this movie. The foundation for life itself is love. Who are we without it? Isn't it crazy to watch a film like Interstellar where so many scientific things come into play? So many confusing things. Like a black hole with a frickin' tesseract centered around one girl's bedroom. Yet love is the one thing we will never fully understand. Where did it come from? Like I said, who would we be without it? It transcends every dimension of space and time. I'm really trying to hammer that theme. It's not tethered to the Earth. Isn't that something? That is why this movie is my favorite. My God, it's just so moving. I've never cried so hard in my life, I swear. And I cry over everything. <laughs> no. Nolan said people approach his films like they're crossword puzzles. And that isn't his intention. That he just wants to entertain an audience. But too late, I look at my life totally different now after watching this film. The start of the film is also something that I found to be highly interesting. 
the way the interviews guide the exposition. They clearly come from the future, and I could kick my own ass for not realizing that meant Cooper definitely succeeded and that it was known from the get-go. If the future generation died of starvation or suffocation, as they were predicted to, then how'd they film the interviews? They wouldn't have. It was subtle, but it still made me mad at myself. You realize where the interviews come from on the space station named after Murph at the replica of the house. I love this moment. Nolan has always been big on manipulating time in his films. Take Inception and Memento, for example. So it's no surprise that the start of the film comes back here. Not to mention all the other elements of time that we've already discussed. I think that's what contributes to this film being confusing to some, including 12-year-old me. Films are usually edited... Mm, I can't say edited. I'd like... Edited, edited, I don't know. Films are usually edited in a continuity style. <laughs> Things flow as they would in life. Time, as we are used to, is progressive. A straight line if you want to look at it metaphorically. In a Christopher Nolan film, if it's a straight line, then it must be like a spaghetti noodle or something because you can't get it to stay that way. Throughout the film, we have these cross cuts, and this is getting a little into post-production, but it's my podcast and I want to talk about it now. A cross cut, for those of you that aren't familiar, is pretty much just like it sounds. We have two instances occurring that we cut between. Usually these instances are occurring simultaneously, but in Interstellar, they're occurring years apart and millions of miles away. That's enough to confuse a 12-year-old, let me tell ya. When Murph burns down the corn to hold Tom off and when Cooper is fighting with man is a prime example of this occurring. Because they're happening at the same time in the movie. But like, if we're to look at it realistically speaking, they're not. Time is passing totally different for the characters in our film. So measuring it can be quite hard at times. On that note, let's get into post-production for realsies. The editing of this film is very, very complex, and is done by Lee Smith. I say it's complex because the shots are not arranged linearly. Everything is centered around Murph's room. And within the same space, we have three, yes, three ongoing realities. I'm going to do my best to explain this because for everyone that doesn't understand the ending, I guarantee you this is probably why. Hear me out. I'm talking specifically about when Cooper is inside the Tesseract. Cooper is there. Older Murph is in what I'll call present day. She's desperately trying to figure out last minute a way to save everyone. Younger Murph is in her bedroom, living out moments we saw earlier in the film. And then we also have Tars feeding Cooper information, which he relays to Murph. All of these people are interacting with each other all at once, just at different points in time. But since Cooper has the ability to manipulate Murph's surroundings within her bedroom because of the Tesseract, they intertwine. Kind of in a way that the walls of the Tesseract do if you want to get artsy, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> artsy fartsy. Cooper first tries to convince himself to stay here. Through tears, he says, Don't let me leave, Murph. Insert Matthew McConaughey accent there. Moments later, he gives himself the coordinates to NASA in binary, informing us, as the audience, that he sent himself. Mindfuck, right? The future was impacting the past the whole time before even showing us. There are seven instances occurring in Murph's room within this Tesseract, which we have all seen before. These, along with Cooper's interactions with young Murph, are intercut with older Murph within the same bedroom. 
Cooper is able to give her the data that will eventually save mankind through a watch on her shelf. A watch that he gave her before leaving. He said they would compare times when he got back. This symbolism is extraordinary. Think about it. This all comes back to time. Time leads to conflict. Time leads to resolution. It also shows the importance of every decision throughout the film. Let's go back to our theme. Love transcends space and time. During this whole scene, time is king. Or so we think. Love is even more prominent, though. It's the guiding force behind it all. It is the motivation of our characters. These two elements play hand in hand and it appears messy, but with careful analysis, you can come to the realization that it's actually meticulously crafted. A lot like time itself. It's a lot, I know. I hope I didn't lose you even more or make you more confused than you already were. I think we need a breather. Let's talk music instead. Hans Zimmer is the composer behind this film, someone Nolan usually works with. The whole score is ominous, filled with chords from a melancholy church organ. The resonance it creates is chilling. They actually recorded the organ in a cathedral on purpose for that reverb effect. The most talked about track from Interstellar is probably Mountains, named after the illusion the massive waves of water on the water planet create. They look like mountains. A prominent ticking sound occurs every 1.25 seconds. Every tick is a whole day passing on Earth as the astronauts race against time. If I was Hans Zimmer, I would smile to myself about that all the time because that's awesome. On a first date, I'd be like, did you know I timed the ticking in Interstellar to be exactly 1.25 seconds to show the passing of a day on Earth? I don't know about you, but I'd want a second date. Just not with Hans Zimmer in actuality, he's not my type. Aside from music, sound as a whole is incredibly great in this movie. You can hear space. You can hear the vacuum it creates. There was no need for ADR with the dialogue pieces either. Due to the helmets, you would think that maybe they might have had to do that. They didn't. They actually had microphones in there. Speaking of the suits, this is just like a random fact for no reason. Anne Hathaway's suit actually filled up with water while filming on the water planet because of a hole in the suit. And evidently the water was freezing. I don't know if she's just being dramatic, but she said it was freezing. They were fighting time. I think it was because the tide was going out or something like that. I don't know. And she ran through the water and filmed this scene in a massive suit filled with water. Queen shit, you know. Anyways, the film was nominated for many Academy Awards, including Best Score, Best Sound Effects, Best Sound Editing, and Best Production Design. You see what I mean when I said the sound was great now? It received an Oscar in only one category, though, which was visual effects. 2001 A Space Odyssey received the same award in its year, which is really cool since that was an inspiration for Nolan. I would have given it all the Oscars, but I don't have a say so. I can officially say that I'm tired of talking now. Surprising, right? So, as they say in Hollywood, that's a wrap. <laughs> a week from today, I will be diving into Olivia Wilde's Booksmart, a drastic contrast from Interstellar. We're going from a film that makes you cry to one that makes you laugh hysterically. Guys, it's literally so funny. You'll get abs from laughing so hard. Unless you're like me and shove popcorn in your face the whole time. But watch it if you haven't. I highly recommend it. Oh my god, it's so good. 
And then for next week, I'm doing a mini episode where I'll be talking about films to get excited about. So stuff that has been announced for post-COVID. Post-COVID just sounds like creepy now that I think of it. Like if you would ask me what that meant a year ago, I'd be like, I don't know, but it sounds terrifying. <laughs> Anyways, that's all I've got. Peace out, movie lovers. <laughs>